Well, hello and welcome back to sadly the last in a series of six podcasts where we've been looking at the connection between music and nature. And one name, ladies and gentlemen, has been amiss in this exploration, and that has been Marla. How could I possibly not discuss Marla for six podcasts? We're going to put that right today by looking at his epic third symphony, which takes in all the different levels of nature and existence in fact from the flowers of the fields right the way through to the angels and who better to take us through that journey than conductor Jessica Cottis whom I met talking about Berlioz how are you I'm very well how are you I'm okay I'm okay I'm enjoying the the summer break are, are you as well uh yeah I think the um the rain that arrived in the last couple of days was some kind of Blessed relief, really. It was a benediction. Um, it really was. <laughs> I think Marla would come up with great music for that. So what's your relationship like to this man? Um, I, uh, the music of Marla has been with me since I was actually a very little girl. Um, but I've always loved it, along with Sibelius and composers like Peter Sculthorpe, particularly because of its such profound links to nature Hang it's on, so just Sculthorpe where did you just snuck that in not many people would say you know Sibelius Marla Sculthorpe yeah I mean you know we're talking about greats so the one of the true greats of Australian classical music Peter Sculthorpe who who wrote so much music that was inspired by the expanse of Australia from from Kakadu to the dry center. Wow, wow. So there we go, that's a lovely prompt for us to go out and explore some wonderful new music by Sculthorpe. So Jessica is um, not only an internationally renowned conductor, um, but also, I think, just looking at you, Jessica, um, a hardy individual who likes to go out embracing nature with your wellies on, long appreciative rambles in the countryside. Am I right? Uh. <laughs> I think so. Hardy. Yeah, yeah, look, I love being out in nature and um, in, in all kinds of weather as well, actually. You're absolutely right. Just kind of getting out of the city and experiencing firsthand uh, with all the senses what it is to be tiny, really, in yeah. such a vast world. And Marla does that so well, doesn't he? That sense of scale, uh, humanity versus the universe that comes across as a theme in so many of his symphonies it really does i mean i don't know maybe maybe this is the kind of the main element i guess of of Mahler's music i i wonder i mean he must have known about the ancient greeks um looking upwards to uh astronomy to to explore what it means to be alive in the cosmos, but also then using music, as the ancient Greeks did, to, to look inwards. Yes, there is that dual perspective going on, isn't there? Very much so, I agree. I, I joked about you being hardy. I wonder if you match Marla's hardiness, because we know that he went for long, long alpine walks and then refreshed himself by taking a dip in lakes, naked, I believe. 
Yeah, I do all of that except for the swimming element. Okay. Okay. Yeah. I thought you were going to say except for the nude elements, but it's the whole swimming you don't. No, touch. the whole swimming thing. No, no, no. But definitely the, the hiking um, and the walking. Wonderful. And one of the very interesting things about you is that you are a lepidopterist. Could you just explain what that entails for you personally? Yeah, um, so an intense interest and fascination and uh, of butterflies mm. uh, and, and the, the study of lepidoptera, of, of um, butterflies around the world, actually, actually. Everywhere I go to conduct, I try, if possible, to see um yeah indigenous butterflies or moths if i can wow and do you take photos of them how do you capture that moment yeah i mean obviously uh hundreds of years ago or even 50 years ago people would take nets and try capture them and that that doesn't today seem particularly ethical so i capture with um with my camera Fantastic. Very ethical, as you say. Very caring. I want to play some butterfly music to you from the Third <laughs> Symphony of Marla. Of course, it's not actually about butterflies, I think. I don't know. Let's see what you think. Um, but this comes from just a segment of the first movement. Does this remind you of butterflies? There's some kind of shimmering going on there at the very least, isn't there? I think there really is, but even more than that, it's, I guess, this unpredictability in a way. We, we think we know what's going to happen and then, you know, we have and, and it's that, I guess that's what really makes nature so intoxicating for us. Those sudden encounters, that unpredictability, um, yeah, that moment where you unexpectedly see a butterfly flitter out from, from the top of an oak tree or, or we see a flower blooming under yes. the broken soils of, you know, fallen stones or something like that. You're right. And he's so good at unpredictability and volatility as well. But it's almost as if this first movement of the Third Symphony is a collage of experiences um, and I suppose most unpredictable of all is the opening. I mean, if this is about summer and the arrival of summer, do you expect it to sound like this? Eight horns blasting out the arrival of Pan, I think. It's like summer riding in with a golden cape. It is. That's not very British, though, is it? <laughs> I mean, is this an Austrian summer, even? Or is this just a mythical summer? I think it's a mythical summer. Is, is it more... It's more, actually, that nature will always have a way. It doesn't matter. It, summer will, will always come. I mean, perhaps not in... Was it 1816 when there was a volcano that spread ash across Europe and there was no summer? And Byron oh, really? wrote about it. But uh, maybe apart from that year, it doesn't matter. Nature will have a way. Summer will come. It will burst in. I think you're absolutely right. It really does convey that, doesn't it? 
the unstoppability of the season. It's quite dark though here as well, and there's something threatening about the music as well. Do you do you sense that? Very much so. Is it thundering, rumbling, almost prefiguring what's going to happen later on in the symphony, that inevitability. And even a funeral march going on here. You play this and I just want to sit and listen to it. <laughs> it's so <laughs> annoying of me, isn't it, to talk over the top of such wonderful music. So by complete contrast, when we get to the minuet in this symphony, we have the flowers of the fields. Let's just play that. It's a bit slow, this version. I'm playing the version by Leonard Bernstein and the New York Phil. Do you normally take it a bit faster than this? Yeah, I, I definitely take it a bit more briskly. Yeah, with the energy of new life. The most carefree thing I've ever written, he said. It really is. He's great at using just these solo, quite frail woodwind voices, isn't he? He is. I was reading the other day, actually, um, vaguely related to this, uh, an interview with Kaya Sariaho, and she was saying that... Um, you know, obviously there's a very symmetrical form of a flower and there are natural elements that break that symmetry, whether it's the wind or maybe it's the water ripples on which the flower is growing. But for her, that was a metaphor for how to transform certain musical material. And obviously we don't have time in this, in this um, discussion, our, our chat, to, to hear how Mahler does that. But we hear later on, he starts to kind of twist that simpleness. Uh, in such surprising and exquisite ways. Coming back to that thought with Mahler of transforming what appears naive and simple, I'm glad to hear you say that because this is where I struggle, actually, with Mahler. <laughs> For me, there's a very fine line between something that is utterly charming and actually slightly twee, none more so than at the beginning of the sketch. So let's just play this. conversation of bird song perhaps it's very jaunty folk song folk dance what are you thinking about when you hear this yeah see again i hear something much much darker it's charming but it's also very shady there's there's a kind of caravaggio-ness to it <laughs> um, you're gonna have to elaborate on that i love that in the sense that there's there is absolutely light but it's very shadowy i mean it's in a minor key for a start yeah
like there's a Jewish song coming across here as well, or am I yeah. willing that on to? Yeah, uh, you know, seconds, um, interval of seconds. So back to the Caravaggio, do you think part of Mahler's complexity is that the light is never just light in this context at least you know he can go full guns blazing with resurrection style music but yeah. in these kind of episodes there's also a, a tinge of darkness of shadow D definitely i mean it's like walking through a glade uh, you know some woods and it is it is darkened but there are shafts of light coming through. We always see in, in these moments um, the shadows. We never quite know what is behind a particular set of trees, but if we look up, we can still see the sky is blue, just in little fragmented moments throughout the, the leaves, the, the leaves in the wind. This is so helpful. So would you say that Mahler is never twee for you? There's always this potential dualism. Ah. Uh, some I would actually uh, maybe that's that's too binary. I, sometimes for me it, it is tweet on purpose. Mm. Um, he's set he's setting up a feeling to set up our expectations that are then shot to pieces, uh, and then the impact is obviously greater. But certainly in this symphony, it's so profound that um, even the most beautiful melody or line has something much much darker to it, much more existential. That's a really helpful way in, I think, and you're absolutely right. He's so good at lulling us into a almost a, a full sense of security <laughs> before yes. unleashing something very, very different. Let's yeah. go to the dark side now. Why not? To the fully dark side, this slow movement of his uh, with the alto soloist, mm. speaking of the night and the darkness of human existence. I love the use of the low plucked harp here. And it's, it, again, it's so simple, just a low A alternating with a B. Mm. I want to talk about moths. This seems to be the world of moths. Do you spend as much time looking at moths as you do butterflies? Uh, I spent a fair amount of time, but I am much more interested in, in the the brightly coloured uh, scales of of butterflies. Some moths are very brightly coloured as well, but there's a there's a colour um, interest for me. This is one of my most favourite pieces in the classical canon. And it, the, the reason, I guess, is that it carries us to such a dark and mysterious place. Uh, like walking at night with just very dim moonlight, not really knowing where we're going. But this sense, I think, that when our vision is dimmed, when it's very dark, our ears 
work even harder. So walking along in the moonlight, suddenly, you know, if there's a a twig that cracks next to us, it seems cataclysmic, it's extremely loud. And I, I feel that this movement really takes us to that place of really intense suspension you're so right and there there are eerie sounds there as well there's that wie ein Naturlaut direction yeah. uh, like a sound of nature where we have I think it's the call of a curly isn't it let's just find that And it's marked hinaftsein, so it has to sort of drag the note up, doesn't it, between the two, almost performing a glissando, which is jolly hard on a double reed instrument. Yeah. Have you have you ever encountered practical problems with that? It, it's a very exposed, virtuosic moment in the symphony for just two notes. Um, bird of the night, but what a solo it is. It's terrifying, really. He's good at terrifying, yeah. isn't he? He can really go there. But he's also good at statements of faith and affirming life, affirming heaven, uh, affirming all that is good in humanity and beyond. None more so than in this finale, which is marked to be played slowly and it has this inexorable growth, doesn't it? Right from the strings to the final bars. What's it like to conduct this? It's, for me, the, this final adagio, it, it seems to exist outside of time. And it's a, it's a kind of wondrous prayer, in a way, a tour de force of tectonically slow and sustained playing. And to really conduct this, it's, it's as though the sonorities don't just go through us as musicians, they actually ideally resonate physically within us how do you get that from your orchestra how do you take them to that place i i i think we just have to allow ourselves to submit to this extraordinary extraordinary music and you know we've heard some excerpts today of this wonderful piece but the reason why this adagio, one of the reasons why this adagio works is because the whole piece is a kind of gesture of struggle in a way. We hear it from the beginning, from the first movement. And of course that speaks to us directly on a very personal level. And by the time we get to this, this final adagio, I feel like um, all the pervasive struggle and anxiety of some of the earlier movements uh, is over. Uh, we, we now arrive in a place of kind of overpowering feeling of love, actually. And for me, a real, real really deep faith in, in humanity. And he talked of divine love in this movement, uh, didn't he? And agape. Yeah. Yeah. Uh, that's pure love. Absolutely. I, I, for me, it's it's one of those movements that can't be reduced to a tangible knowledge, 
a tangible human knowledge. It's something greater than us. It's the the feeling that we have when we go outside and we contemplate the cosmos and our universe and all the universes and how we might exist within that. Um, and I, I often think with this movement um, also right down to the smallest, the smallest element of, of visible nature for us. So, uh, you know, a tiny flower or a seed and reminding us actually that our existence is is so deeply inserted in into the world around us so the 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 micro and the macro all at once could do it quite like this this <laughs> range this ambition almost is yeah. so surprising isn't it? it it is incredibly surprising and hugely i mean it's one of the most effective pieces of music i ever written it carries us through through life really and our existence and not just as individuals but sort of seeing humans as as part of the unpredictability of nature and the rawness and the unrelentingness of nature as well. Well look at this ladies and gentlemen we've seemed to have reached a natural high in our discussion I I don't believe we could go on without some form of bathos now and I don't want to rule it so Jessica thank you so much for sharing your thoughts um, on nature and on Marla it's been a real pleasure speaking to you And thank you to those of you who've listened in to all six of these podcasts. I hope you'll continue to enjoy them in the future. And we'll just let Marla have the last say.